This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, assistant editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with philosopher Martha Nussbaum about her new book, Justice for Animals, Our Collective Responsibility. She is the Ernst Freund Distinguished Service Professor of Law and Ethics at the University of Chicago in the Law School and the Philosophy Department. It's a real privilege and pleasure to be able to speak today with Martha about such an important topic. Thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Hi, Caleb. It's really a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited. And, you know, this is, a, I think, such a, an important topic. I personally uh, am, am a pescatarian. I'm, I'm the heretic in my family of, of vegans. So I'm always interested to read books of, of this nature. And I think that uh, you, you did a really fantastic job of uh, addressing many, you know, questions that I've had about uh, vegetarianism and uh, justice for animals. So I think before talking about the book, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, I've been writing and teaching philosophy ever since 1975 when I got my PhD. So I'm really a dyed-in-the-wool academic. I come from a family in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania that was very sort of elitist. And I then converted to Judaism and became different and joined a different family. But anyway, I went to graduate school in 1969 and got my PhD in 75. And ever since, I've been in the academy. So I'm really uh, nothing so um, exciting to say about that, except that I love writing and I love teaching and I teach undergraduates and graduate students. You've written on so many topics from politics to literature to the philosophy of emotions. Uh, Why write about animals? Okay, well, complicated. I mean, I... First of all, I think it is a natural department of my, the theory I've developed for some years, the capabilities approach, which I should say I developed jointly with Amartya Sen, whose Nobel Prize was 1998. But I developed it in a different direction, using it as the basis for a theory of justice, which he does not do. And anyway, I, I really think we wrong animals and there is injustice there and we need to talk about it and we need to see what theories are best equipped to do the job. So one thing that led me to write this book is that I felt that the dominant theories that were being used by lawyers and activists in this area 
which are the theory, the anthropocentric theory that in the book I call the So Like Us approach by Stephen Wise, the head of the Non-Human Rights Project, and then the utilitarian approach, which has been around since Jeremy Bentham in the 18th century, but has been developed today by Peter Singer, great activist and supporter of animal welfare. Um, I thought those two approaches, although bold and interesting, were not really the right approaches. So the main purpose of the book is to outline what I think is a better approach to guide our efforts. But another reason that I wanted to write a whole book about this was my daughter, who was a lawyer for animal rights, and she was a very passionate defender of animal rights, worked for an NGO called Friends of Animals for the last years of her life. But as that suggests, she is no longer living. She died in 2019. But before that, we wrote four articles together about particularly wild animals, because she was in the wildlife division of this NGO. And she worked particularly on whales and dolphins, although she was fond of lots of other animals. So we, we wrote four articles together where she supplied the law and I supplied the philosophy. And I learned so much from working with Rachel that I just felt I need to do this. And then when she, I was already writing the book when she got ill, but when she died, I felt, of course, it was a devastating experience, but I felt, what shall I do? I must continue the things she cared about and was committed to and make those things live and take force in our world as a, a, a showing of respect to her, but also a way of, in a way, making her, making her live on. I think that, you know, that that really comes through uh, the, the, the book. Uh, you, you, you cover so many different aspects of animal rights, I think, much more expansively than than other books that I've read on the topic. Uh, the first thing you mentioned is that the so like us approach. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this approach, because I think it's one that many listeners are probably just familiar with in general and what you find to be the limitations of it. Well, Steve Wise is a very courageous activist, and I don't want to take anything away from that. He was also the first lawyer to teach a law school course on animal rights at, at Harvard. So he's a bold pioneer. But I think he modeled his approach on what he thought the mindset of actual judges was. So it's not like he actually believes this is the best, but it, he believes it will work best because it corresponds to where people already are. And it's built on the traditional idea of the scala naturae, the ladder of nature, with human beings securely at the top and everyone else sort of trailing along behind. And then he says, well, there are a few species that are really pretty close to us, great apes, elephants, and maybe whales. And so those few should get designated as persons under law. And then he can use habeas corpus to ask for their living conditions to be altered. He hasn't succeeded in that. He had one case involving a chimpanzee and another involving an elephant. And these were cases where the animal certainly was being wronged by its conditions of confinement. And what he wanted to do was get it transferred to an animal sanctuary. So I'm all with him on what he wanted to do. But he thought he could best persuade the judges by saying these animals are so like us. And I think that's the wrong argument. Animals should be protected because of what they are, not because of what we are. And they're not all like us. And in fact, they're not even below us. He suggested that there was this ladder. But of course, I think animals are different from us in surprising ways. Some have abilities that we don't have. 
For example, birds can navigate by perceiving magnetic fields, and we certainly can't do that. And dolphins can identify what's inside an object that they approach through echolocation. A surprising case of that was a trainer who realized that her, I mean, a, a, a dolphin realized that her trainer was pregnant before the trainer herself realized that because the dolphin could tell that there was something inside that hadn't been there before. And the trainer, of course, didn't know that yet. So anyway, these are abilities we don't have. Animals also have, I think, ethically charged abilities that we don't have. Chimpanzees, although they're very aggressive, also are wonderful peacemakers. Bonobos are also, in quite different ways, wonderful peacemakers. So anyway, animals should be learned about for what they are and judged for what they do rather than for likeness to us. So that's my basic gripe. And of course, you can see that he thinks only a few species qualify for protections at all under his approach. So the horrors of the factory farming industry are completely left out in the dark. In the book, you advocate for a framework uh, called the capabilities approach. Uh, you mention, uh, of course, that this is something that you've developed, that you developed with the Martisen previously, uh, and something that you've discussed in many past works. Uh, I was wondering if you could just tell a little bit about the capabilities approach and how it differs from other frameworks. Okay, well, Sen and I were worried that nations, developing countries in particular, were being ranked by the UN and other agencies according to gross domestic product per capita. Now, that crude measure, so it's easy to get that number, but it doesn't tell you how people are really doing. Number one, it's an average, so it doesn't tell you about people at the bottom, and it could give high marks to nations that have huge inequalities. So in the old days, South Africa under apartheid used to shoot to the top of the development tables because there was a lot of wealth around in the old South Africa, even though 90% of the people were totally shut out from the use of that wealth. That's one flaw. And another flaw is that it's just a single number, but human lives have different parts. A country can do well on education, but not so well on health. It can do well on both of those, but not so well on political liberty and so on. So you really need a plural measure and you need to set out how well a nation is doing in each area. So we thought the pertinent question really is, what are people actually able to do and to be? And that the answer to that question is what we call capabilities. So capabilities are not skills, not internal skills. They are spaces within which people can choose to do things that they find valuable. And so we um, said that's a, a better, of course, hard to measure. Things that are hard to measure are hard to get policymakers to take an interest in. But anyway, we've had a lot of success over the years. The human development reports of the UN Development Program now rank countries according to certain capabilities. And, and so that, that's what we were doing. We also thought it was a better measure than utilitarian measures based on the satisfaction of preference. And that's the second flawed approach that I talk about in the animal book. So let me say something about that. Utilitarians, of course, were wonderful defenders of animals because they saw that pain is just as bad for animals as it is for humans. But I think the big flaw is that it's too flat. It thinks that pain is the one bad thing pleasures, the one good thing, or satisfaction of preferences. And once again, 
that's an average. So again, it doesn't tell you how people at the bottom are doing. And it may be that, uh, you know, people who are doing uh, well in terms of pleasure are doing well in, because their pleasures come from bad things they're doing, like oppressing other people and animals. So it doesn't even look at the source of the pleasure. Se second problem is it aims at a state, the state of either pleasure or in, in Singer's version, satisfaction of preferences. But actually people don't want to just be satisfied. People want to be agents and they really want to be in control of their own lives. So utilitarianism really short sells agency short. And I think that's a really big flaw when you're dealing with developing countries, because it's very condescending to say to people, here's a handout. Much better to think about ways of empowering the actual people to do something with their own lives. So with animals, too. Animals don't want to just be patted on the head. They want to act. They want to have spaces created within which they can act. So those are the flaws, I would say. The other... Uh common ethical framework that you look at is, is Kantian perspectives. And you take a particular look at Christine Korsgaard's views. I was wondering if you could talk about her perspectives and what you see as the issues with, with that approach. Well, first, I want to say that Chris's book is a wonderful book. Everyone should look at it. It's called Fellow Creatures. Chris was actually my one of my first dissertation students at Harvard in the old days. And her dissertation was on both Aristotle and Kant. And the book actually has quite a lot of Aristotle in it, too. And I think, you know, it's, it is an amazing book, very richly argued. And she certainly does depart from the historical Kant, who thought that we could use animals any way we like. They were just a kind of property. So she denies that. And she also denies that we could rank species one over another. Each animal's life has to be judged in its own terms. So I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I think in a lot of our practical recommendations, we converge. But the problem I have is that toward the end of the book, she comes back to Kant. And of course, this has been a big part of her career as a philosopher, very interested in self-constitution through reason, the way that human beings through deliberation and making for oneself a practical identity can constitute a self. That's a very interesting concept. But she, I think, makes too much of it in this book because she says, well, since humans are the only species that can do that, that doesn't make humans better, she thinks, but it does mean that we're the only ones who can direct policies and laws in this area. So we can be active citizens, whereas the other animals can only be passive citizens. And I think this is just too simple because animals really are very active in indicating their preferences. If we want to make good laws regarding animals, we need to listen to their voices, their vocalisms, but also their behavior that also indicates their preferences and needs. And there's no reason why we can't regard them as fully active citizens. We already regard people with severe cognitive disabilities as active citizens. They have a right to go to court, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, they're represented by a surrogate, but so are a lot of us. I would not go to court as my own lawyer since I don't have a law degree anyway. So anyway, I think Chris underestimates the capacity of animals to be fully active citizens. And she also, I think, makes too crude the distinction between humans and other animals. It may be that there are certain kinds of extremely elaborate deliberation that humans go through and that animals don't go through, but animals reason. 
in many ways, very striking ways. I've immersed myself in the latest scientific research on animals so much for this book, and I've, I've learned so much. Crows are one of the most complicated reasoners in the animal kingdom. But I mean, every kind of animal reasons in its own way. That's how it survives, by thinking about its own environmental niche and how to fend off dangers and so forth. And as I said before, some of that thinking is also ethical. Animals have complicated communities. You think about even cheetahs, they divide their prey equally among the members of the group. A group of wild dogs that I observed in Botswana help the disabled members of their group because after they kill the prey, well, the ones that are straggling behind get fed. So animals have a, a kind of ethical community in most cases, and it's one that sometimes outdoes what we do. So I would say our ethical abilities and our deliberative abilities are part of our animal heritage. We're animals too, and we should not drive a big wedge between ourselves and the other animals. After uh, you discuss the, the issues with utilitarianism and the Kantian approaches, you outline uh, a little bit more of your capabilities approach. And in particular, you go over some central capabilities. Uh, and I was wondering if you could discuss some of them and how to think about them in the context of animals and what some of their central capabilities are. Well, the basic idea is that every kind of animal, each, so it's focused on the individual, but I think the list of capabilities needs to be framed in the first instance at the species level, not, not reifying the species, but just as a first cut to direct policy. We should think about the characteristic life activities of a certain type of animal, and we should leave spaces for animals to choose those activities up to some reasonable threshold level. Now, I think it turns out that the very large rubrics of the human capabilities list work pretty well for animals. So, so on my human list, I have 10 capabilities, but then there's a, a kind of generic rubric and then a lot of finer, more specific things under that. So the generic ones are life, bodily health, bodily integrity. Well, you can see already those matter to animals too the ability to use senses, imagination, and thought, which brings in lots of finer-tuned things like the freedom of speech and the freedom of association. And then we get to practical reason, the ability to kind of make your life path your own. And that, again, that matters to animals in their own way, too. Each animal wants to live its own life, not somebody else's life. And then we get affiliation. Now, again, it's a generic thing. So humans have one type of affiliation or set of types that, that they need and want. Animals have different types. So dolphins need quite a large pod in order to live their characteristic way of life. Elephants need a matriarchal herd and then several loner males that roam around and meet up with the herd from time to time. And so each animal has its own form of society, but it needs that. And this is part, I'd use this later to talk about why it's immoral to keep elephants in the zoo, because they can never have the form of society that they need, whales and orcas similarly. So anyway, affiliation. And then we get interrelationships with other species and the world of nature, which of course we need, but other animals do too. Some of them need particularly relationships with their own species, but 
occasionally with other species. There are some animals like dogs and cats who are very symbiotic with humans and that was central to their form of life would be relationships with humans and all need good relationships with the natural habitat around them. Play, which of course in human politics gets too little attention, I think. Sometimes it's called leisure in order to say, well, it's just the time when you're not working. But it's a big deal in human life. Being able to play, being able to laugh, those are crucial ingredients of being fully human. And now we know that pretty much all animals engage in play. Activities chosen sort of for their own sake to develop the community, to develop the self, that are not forms of work and they're not forms of need-based behavior. And finally, control over your material and social environment. We need this in our own way. Each animal needs it in its own way. It would not have evolved, it would not survive if it didn't have some of that. So I think these large rubrics are good ones for pretty much all species of animals. But when you get more specific, of course, then you have to introduce the differences. And my idea would be that people who've lived with a given species of animal for many years and really love and know that species, interact with them and so forth, and there are such people for most species, they would be making these lists and constantly revising them, leaving always spaces for individual variation because we're protecting spaces for choice, not mandatory functions. But then we would go on and be willing to change it if anything we said proves inaccurate because we're learning so much every day. So my idea is that these lists would form a sort of virtual constitution. There can't be a national constitution protecting all animals because a lot of the animals that I talk about in the book cross national boundaries. And of course, there's no nation that has the political will to endorse or make such a constitution anytime soon. International law is much weaker even than domestic law but a virtual constitution that we can all aim at and try to cooperatively get to more and more as the years go on. And there should be the idea of a threshold. Well, we can't be perfect, but we can get the creatures up above some reasonable threshold. And so that's the aim of the, the list, to guide us in making laws. And I think it really does much better than the other three approaches because it First of all, unlike Chris's, it recognizes animals as active. Can't make the list without listening to what animals say and do. But unlike utilitarianism, it it looks at many different kinds of things. And we aren't satisfied if the animals simply feel no pain. We want to know, do they have enough society? Many animals in zoos are not feeling pain, but they don't have enough society and they may not even know what they're missing if they were born in the zoo. So, so those are the reasons why I think it does better than the other approaches. How should we think about ethical treatment of species as whole, as a whole, uh, versus individual uh, members of that species? Well, to me, a species is not a subject of a theory of justice. A species is not a sentient being. This theory says that justice is the wrongful thwarting of a sentient being's striving. And the sentient beings, that means the ones who can feel pain, but also who have a subjectivity, who who see the world from their own point of view. Uh, So I think that justice doesn't pertain to a species. A species is just an intellectual term 
and it's a rough term. It's not even biologists think it's too much of a generalization in, in most cases. But, you know, it does play a role in the lives of individuals. Most individual animals need a species community around them because they have to reproduce, they want to reproduce, but they also have to have enough to reproduce in a healthy way. So one of the issues, of course, that comes up a lot with habitat de depletion is that groups are separated so much that they can't migrate across corridors that would allow them sufficient reproductive diversity. So that uh, shows you that a species has to have not just one or two others, but an actual community. And that's good for the, the individual animals. If a species starts to go extinct, what happens is that individuals suffer. So if an individual is stranded and unable to find food, that's how species usually go extinct. So I'm not for preserving species as an end in itself, but as a means to the good lives of members. Another uh, aspect that you bring up is the difference between animals that we typically eat versus animals that we keep as pets. How should we think about ethical treatment uh, of these two different animal categories? And obviously, these animals can differ or be the same depending on different cultural contexts. Yeah, well, this is a big question. Actually, first of all, I don't like the word pet because it suggests that an animal is like a toy. I prefer the term companion animal which is more respectful. But anyway, I think there are actually three groups. So they're the ones that we live with, the companion animals. They're the animals we eat. And then there's a large third group, including migratory birds, fish, whales. Well, we do eat fish, but whales and other animals, which are under human control in a general sense, because every part of our world is controlled by humans, but we don't eat them. Now, what we notice is that laws that protect animals protect the companion animals pretty well if they were adequately enforced. Every state in the United States has a whole raft of laws protecting dogs and cats. They're different, but, but basically pretty good. I think they're not adequately enforced, but that's a separate issue. We, we need a reporting mechanism similar to the way we have in most American cities and states, mechanisms to report child abuse where People are mandatory reporters if they see abuse of children and so on. But anyway, we also have laws that protect migratory birds, marine mammals. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act is a very good law that protects migratory birds. The Marine Mammal Protection Act actually led to the invalidation of the U.S. Navy's sonar program because that was said to disrupt the reproductive and migration behavior of whales. So that was a very interesting instance of a law that really has teeth in it to protect a, a migratory species. But both of these laws and other laws completely leave out the animals that we eat. So the Migratory Bird Treaty Act says explicitly that they're not going to include the birds that we eat. That's why they put migratory in the title itself. The Animal Welfare Act doesn't include any of the animals that people eat. So that is because of the huge power of the meat industry in American politics. A lot of European countries have gone much further to protect those animals. Some states within the US are making quite a lot of progress and there's progress more on some issues than on others. For example, eggs, I think there's real progress on getting free range eggs available everywhere. 
And California, of course, doesn't allow any eggs to be sold that are not free-range eggs, but other states are getting near that. But the big issues that the meat industry cares about, first of all, they're hidden from view. There are in quite a few states still what are called ag-gag laws, that is laws forbidding reporting and photography of what goes on inside these meat industry slaughterhouses. So people are, you know, they're breaking these laws when they actually tell the truth about what's going on there. Well, those laws have been challenged and a lot of them have been repealed and some have been actually held to be unconstitutional under state freedom of speech laws, but a lot of states still have them. So that's one battle line that we have. But the meat industry also has a more indirect kind of power over our politics. People who come up for Senate confirmation get interviewed by the meat industry if their job involves any kind of regulation, and they want to know, are you really going to regulate us out of business? So these people have great power. And that is, I think, one reason why Europe has been able to progress further. So we have to grapple with that. And I think one, one surprising thing that might possibly help was the changing in the dates of the Democratic primaries. Because until recently, well, until now, the first primary was in Iowa, one of the worst torturers of animals, because there are pigs that are being crammed into these gestation crates, which are a terrible form of animal torture, where the animal has a metal crate just the size of its own body, sees no other pig, and it has to defecate through metal slats into a sewage lagoon below. Pigs are very clean animals. They don't like to defecate near where they live. They're also very social animals, and they like to be with other pigs. So this is a terrible torture. But anyway, if you don't go to Iowa and pose for a photo op with a pork sausage in your hand, you're not going to be getting very far in a presidential primary. There are politicians like Cory Booker, who, are, who is a big defender of animal rights, and he is a vegan, would not get very far in, in that particular contest. So that maybe will change when I was no longer the first primary. We'll have to wait and see. So different states are, are really very different in terms of their commitment to animal welfare. So you make the argument that humans have responsibility to protect uh, what we may refer to as the wild or nature, almost the idea that that it's okay for humans to interfere, maybe is the wrong word, but it's okay for humans to um, interact or engage with things that go on in the wild, that these aren't necessarily, this shouldn't necessarily be separated. I don't know if I'm uh, no, <laughs> using the I, framework. Yeah. Um, the first thing to say is there really is no such thing as the wild. People's thought that it is, is an illusion. Every space in the earth, seas, and sky is dominated by human actors. So if we think about the land, there are these large tracts of land that elephants wander around in, but typically they're wildlife refuges that are managed by nations. The nations police them and don't let poachers in. One that I was in a while ago had the military police on the border so that poachers wouldn't come in from the neighboring country. And they do other things. They spray the, for certain parasites and for tsetse flies and so forth. Now, that's benign stewardship, but, but of course, there's malign human agency, too. A lot of poaching is going on. And in the seas, boy, 
whales are dying choked with plastic, plastic trash. A couple of whales that washed up recently were found to contain more than 80 pounds of plastic trash in the stomach. And so the humans, you know, you and me, we're not malevolent, but we're very negligent. We use these single-use plastic items not aware that down the line, someday, it's going to kill and choke a whale. Whales die of starvation because they eat the plastic, but they don't excrete it. And so they get fuller and fuller of plastic until they can no longer take in any real food. But also in the ocean, oil companies are drilling. And although the Navy sonar program, as I said, could be reined in by law, that's not true of the deep seas. It's only true in coastal areas. So oil companies are out there drilling, which makes tremendous noise. But before they drill, they have to chart the ocean floor. And so they send air bombs down. Every 30 seconds, they're sending an air bomb to make a map of the ocean floor. So whales migrate and actually move and sense one another more through hearing than through sight or smell. But all of a sudden, they're in an environment bombarded by noise. And we know that the stress hormones of whales go way up in recent years. So that's an example of how what looked like the wildest space of all, the deep seas, is really dominated by humans. The skies are dominated by humans. The air pollution in the skies has rendered most migratory birds marginal in terms of survival possibilities. So in short, we are in control everywhere. So the only question is not whether we should intervene, but how. Now, I think there are plenty of good ways to intervene and that we're already using. So, for example, the ways that in a wildlife refuge, they police the, uh, the thing for various dangers like poachers. Also, more cautiously, if an animal is injured, very often people who know science and so will, let's say, set the bone of a tiger's leg if it's a tiger that could be then released again to its own group. So that's an intervention that's a little trickier because you want to make sure the animal can go back to its group, but it's regularly done. Then we have the question, what about what animals do to each other? Should we do anything about that? Now, I don't think there was one philosopher who suggested tentatively that we might engineer the obsolescence of the predatory species. I reject that idea. I think it would make a mess of ecosystems. But I also think that they're not doing anything wrong. It's not by their own conscious choice that they're harming these animals. However, I also reject an idea that certain neo-Aristotelian philosophers have put forward, namely that it's the goal or telos of an antelope to be eaten by a predator. No, the goal of any animal that survived through evolution is to survive and lead its own life. But so what do we do? I don't think that we're at the stage of knowledge where we could reasonably do anything about predation unless the animal is in an enclosed space. Companion animals that we live with, we don't usually let our cats eat birds. We, if the cat is an indoor cat, it doesn't come up. If the cat is an outdoor cat, the companion usually deflects the cat from, from trapping a bird. But the way they do it is not to give the cat endless frustration of its predatory capabilities, 
It's instead to give it a substitute activity, scratching posts, balls to play with, and so on. Now, in zoos that keep predatory large animals, they do exactly the same thing. They give the tiger humanely killed meat, but then they give it a weighted ball to play with to exercise its predatory capacities. But I don't think those large predatory animals should be kept in zoos. So, so I have that's not going to be a goal of mine. What should and could we do? I think the thing is we have to realize it's a problem because the smaller animals are trying to live their lives and they are harmed by predation. But we should be very, very cautious. The one suggestion I make at the margins is that we should stop propping up and staging a kind of theater of animal torture. If you go on eco safari, you find pretty quickly that a lot of the people who are there are there because they want to see predation. It's like the people who went to the Roman gladiatorial games and they ooh and ah, and I've ridden with such people at 4 a.m., you know, seeing a pack of wild dogs leap on an antelope and tear it limb from limb before the antelope is even dead. It's a very grisly and painful death. People love it and they celebrate it and that's what they pay the money for. And the nation of Botswana makes most of its income from tourist dollars. They know what the public wants and they're giving them what they want. I don't really blame them, but I do feel that that should be reined in and stopped, the theater of animal torture. And of course, what they're doing is trying to make sure that at any given time, there are enough wild dogs and enough packs of wild dogs that they can keep this theater going reliably so that every day at 4 a.m. there's going to be a hunt like that. So I, I really think what I call sado tourism has to stop and we should call out and say that this must not be a way of making money. It's very unfortunate because it does make money, but you know, human beings also have a desire to gloat over torture and we've tried to stamp that out and provide human beings with some kind of substitute activity, whether football is that or not, I will leave it to viewers and listeners to judge, but I think humans in general seek substitute activities rather than watching the torture of other human beings as they did in the Roman Empire. Your last chapter focuses on the role of law, uh, and you, you, you look at many different laws and, and aspects um, of the legal system. Uh, so I was just wondering, you know, with, without having to go into every single de little detail, uh, if you could just talk a little bit about how you would like for people to rethink the law uh, or maybe some new innovations that you think could help? Well, it's so complicated, Caleb, because law is at so many different levels. There's local laws and there's state laws and there are national laws. And then, of course, the very patchy field of international law. Well, first of all, I think animals need to have standing to go to court. That's the first step. Now, those not, not familiar with that concept, you only have standing if you can show that you have a particularized injury. So, for example, in this debates about Biden's loan forgiveness program, the states that are challenging that have to show, and this is the big point that's being debated there, that they have a particularized injury from that program. So why are animals not included? They certainly have particularized injury. Well, they could be included if Congress passed a law saying they are included. That's clear. It's 
legal experts have said there's no constitutional barrier to that. The barrier is just legislation. But they don't because they don't want too many suits. Now, if, for example, the laws protecting companion animals are being violated, if dogs are being beaten and no one's doing anything about it, there is no one who has standing to go to court because even the humans who care, they don't have a particularized injury. So they've resorted to dodges like saying, I have an aesthetic injury when I see this happening, it hurts me as an aesthetic being. So all of these things are unnecessary if the animals only were given standing as plaintiffs in the first place. There's no reason why they can't be because we now give standing to people with cognitive disabilities, whether they're infants or people with lifelong disabilities or people with senile dementia. All of these people have standing to go to court. Of course, they have to have a lawyer and they have to have some sort of guardian representing them, but they can be plaintiffs in a legal action. Animals have this in four countries in the world, Colombia, Argentina, Ecuador, and India. In India, it's slightly different. They're, e they're even persons under Article 21 of the Indian Constitution. But anyway, no reason why we can't do that, but we just haven't done it yet. And in Colombia recently, there was a, a big case where they wanted to kill all the hippos that Pablo Escobar had brought to Colombia. He was a great friend of animals, but he didn't realize that hippos would multiply so widely in Colombia. And they, then the parliament thought there were too many hippos, and they just ordered mass killing of hippos. The hippos were able to go to court. And there is this case that they won, the, the plaintiff of which is the hippos of the such and such river valley. So anyway, that's the sort of thing that I'm in favor of. Then I think we need a basic idea of what the duties of the guardian are. And I draw on the canonical notion of fiduciary duties to flesh that out. But finally, this is no good if we don't have some kind of robust international agreement. That's where we're weakest. I think it's not in the too far future that we'll have much better state laws. Local laws are already pretty good. I, I look at particular instances. I look at the puppy mill industry. I look at the factory farming industry. But anyway, international law is really in a terrible shape because there are things that are formed to protect animals but then nations just pull out when it doesn't suit their interests. So I look particularly at the case of whaling. Of course, whaling was a long-standing in industry where whales were harpooned, very painful death, and they were tortured, really, by the harpooning. The novel Moby Dick is such, such a wonderful depiction of this, and it's such a wonderful account of the contradictions in the human mind, because Ishmael describes the death of a whale with great empathy. And then he pulls back and says, well, of course, I suppose it's all right because we have this profit that we're making and so forth. So that's what people thought for many, many years. Then the whale numbers were going down. So nations got together and formed the International Whaling Commission, which was supposed to protect the numbers of whales so that there would be enough to kill in the future. So that's what it was really for. But as time went on, it did part of that job pretty well. Not always, because there were defectors who broke the law. I'm reviewing now a very interesting book about Soviet whaling, 
how in the Soviet era, under great pressure to bring good news back, they would lie about the numbers, but then they would actually manufacture real numbers by breaking the laws of the International Whaling Commission. But in the process, and what was so interesting about this book, the people involved, who were included a lot of scientists, they got to know about whales, and they got to really care about them. And so this is what has happened in the International Whaling Commission, that now there's a large number of people who think that killing whales should simply stop, and that cruelty of all kinds to whales should simply stop. And, you know, the Japanese have tried to stop this with various species objections that I talk about, but then they didn't get their way. Well, what happened then? The Japanese withdrew from the International Whaling Commission so they could do as they like. That's the weakness of international law, that the nations really are not bound by it. If they stay in, then they are, but they can easily quit. And so, you know, it's, um, it's not as though the Japanese are worse than us. I think the U.S. Are, uh, express great outrage about the behavior of the Japanese with regard to whales because we don't do very much whaling. If we did, if we made a lot of profit from selling whale meat, I suppose our behavior would not be so so good. But anyway, you know, how do you deal with this? And I think it's the same problem with human rights. Also, if people want to flout them, they do. The only way to deal with this is to create an evolving consciousness of humanity that would press for these reforms. It's like rights for women. The, Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women resulted from a large mobilization of women around the globe that said, this is intolerable, we have to have standards, and then they put in these standards, and then they keep having to try to struggle that these standards are taken seriously by the nations. That's what needs to happen with animals, and we're just at the starting point with that. My last question uh, pertains to something that you talk about in the in the first chapter, which is the, the importance of wonder uh, and how wonder can uh, lead to compassion. And something I was thinking about while reading the book is, you know, going through these sort of, uh, you know, these very well-reasoned arguments and then thinking about like my own uh, sort of process in stopping eating meat and that it actually just came out of me watching a lot of videos of animals uh, and having interactions with animals. So I was I was wondering if you could just talk a little, a little bit about wonder. Well, that's great. And I, I, I think that's what needs to happen to so many kids in schools. Right now, we have so many good videos. And of course, that needs choice. I think there are also bad films and videos that are human-centric. Uh, I think even my octopus teacher, which does have beautiful photography, is pretty narcissistic because it's all about the midlife crisis of the guy and not so much about the octopus. But anyway. We have so many videos. And, of course, when people can't see the actual animal, of course, if you live on the coasts, you can, and you can go on a whale-watching boat. But zoos are not the place, I believe, for most animals, but maybe for some smaller animals they are. But just seeing what animals are like and amazing behavior that they engage in, then I think our attitude changes because we see value there. And we see complexity there. And we don't think anymore, oh, that's just a thing that we can use as we please. So I think teaching is so much easier now than it used to be that we don't just have to rely on novels that depict animals, although some of those are good too. 
And I read Black Beauty when I was a kid. And with all its faults, I think it's still good. I would rather assign kids to read Tolstoy's story, Strider. He wrote a long, short story about a horse, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing, much better than Black Beauty. So, you know, you can read stuff too. But to see the behavior, to see it with your own eyes, wow. And just how can we let that be cluttered up by plastic trash or tortured by poachers and so on? So that, I think, is what everything, everyone should have that opportunity. Well, Martha, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. Uh, it was great to speak with you. The oh, book sure. is thank Justice you. for... Of course, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is a really fascinating book. Yeah, Caleb, I really enjoyed this. So thank you so much.